This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And you're listening to episode 195. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. Quick announcement. We are now two months away from the SNN Network Canada virtual event happening December 7 through 9, 2021. Paul Andriola from Small Cap Discoveries and myself uh, on behalf of SNN Network are teaming up again to highlight our neighbors to the north, Canada. In the last five to 10 years, small micro and nano cap investors have been finding value accretive opportunities on the TSX, TSX Venture and the CSE public markets. So we wanted to have an event that encapsulates all of that. So you can expect three days of keynotes, educational panels, company presentations, and one-on-one meetings. To register, please go to canada.snn.network and click the register button. I look forward to seeing you all there. Now, for this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Josh Young. He is the CIO of Bison Interests. And I recently met Josh at our last virtual event when he participated on Ben Claremont's 10K Club panel and pitched Sandridge Energy. That panel is also available on the SNN Network YouTube channel. If you've been following Josh on Twitter, he has been very active discussing oil and gas investing, the energy crisis, rising gas prices. And I wanted to be more informed about what the heck is going on. Listen, gas ain't cheap here in Los Angeles. We not only go into everything that's happening currently, we also answer all of your questions that were submitted on Twitter. I really enjoyed our conversation because Josh gets into detail for folks who know energy, natural gas, oil and gas well. And then he also breaks it all down for those who haven't really been following the news. So thank you again for tuning into episode 195 of the Planet Microcap podcast. And please enjoy my conversation with Josh Young. Welcome back, everybody, to the Planet Microcap podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. And joining me today is a gentleman who we met during uh, when we did the special 10K club that was hosted by Ben Claremont. Uh, we, we shared that at our last virtual event and uh, really enjoyed his insights and, and the stock that he was talking about at that time. I thought that was a really interesting conversation. And so it, it, I had to invite him on to do an individual interview here. With that, joining me right now is Josh Young. He's the chief investment officer at Bison Interests. Josh, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing, man? Great. How are you? Listen, I'm I'm just ready to learn everything there is to know about what's going on in energy, oil. I mean, look, I, if you don't mind, should we just dig right in? You know, let's give the people what they want. 
Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in learning about those things too. So uh, let's go. <laughs> go, go, go. Well, I hope you're not expecting that from me. So, <laughs> but let's hear what you have to say. You know, uh, as I said, um, you, you've been very active on social media, on Twitter, specifically in the FinTwit community, talking about oil, OPEC, energy, commodities, the whole bit. So uh, love, love to hear your insights. Can, can you break it down? What, what, what's happening? What's going on right now? Sure. So, uh, I mean, it's funny because I've been interested in talking about oil and gas since it was popular the last time in kind of, you know, 2008, 2007. So uh, this is just kind of, uh, my grandpa was a mathematician. He did partial differential equations. They were totally useless for 30 years. And then it turns out that they're great for cryptography and other stuff. And his work is now like used in many universities. And so I feel like it's kind of this like similar, like, oh, wow, people are interested. But honestly, it's really scary because the last time people were really interested um, things got really hot and valuations got really uh, uh, stretched. And then uh, obviously there was a, a prolonged downturn. So that's something I feel like it's worth mentioning ahead of time. These, this is a cyclical industry and in up cycles, it's amazing and really exciting and interesting. And in down cycles, it's very interesting to those who find it interesting, but everyone else finds it terrible and then loses lots of money. And so um, definitely, I think that's like the most important thing, probably top three most important things about oil and gas is it's cyclical and, you know, watch out below. So tell me, I mean, where are we at then in the cycle right now? Is it at that point where it's on the come up or is it now already reached peak interest? And now it's just like, let me remind you guys of what happened the last time that there was peak interest, you know, so where, where are we at? I'm not calling it a peak. I think I've seen these like kind of the charts where they go, they show the, uh, there's like the initial interest and then the drawdown. So I think that kind of drawdown was um, earlier this year, uh, actually in between end of June and like a month and a half ago, where oil prices fell by 15 or $20 a barrel, natural gas prices fell a lot, stocks got crushed. I mean, one of my largest positions was down 60 something percent from end of June to like, mid-August. Yeah, it was, it was brutal. And, you know, what I do is very volatile, but also extremely rewarding. And, you know, it's one of those things where like people will like managers of large amounts of money will be like this. I will not recommend this to my client, but here is money from me to do this. Like several people recently have done that. So it's exciting, but also, you know, it just comes with the territory. So you know, I think we're kind of in that kind of initial phase. You ramp up, you come down a little bit, and then you start getting some media attention. Um, I've noticed like news articles are still mostly talking about like oil and gas framed from an alternative energy perspective. So I, I think we're still at the early kind of media attention space. Uh, CNBC and some of these other guys still can't tell who they have on and that the people that they have on who've been on for the last like five years are probably not the best people to have on for, you know, uh, how to get educated on what's actually happening. These guys have just been like wrong on oil over and over and over again. So we're still kind of at that early stage of the media uh, cycle. And there's still a lot more to go from a psychology perspective. So maybe it's like ending three or something, four, I don't know. Um, but definitely it's good to kind of watch it similar to like watching the clock or watching the parking meter before it expires or something. And so um, I spent a lot of time looking at that. So what, what would you say are some of the reasons for the renewed interest, you know, for now, you know, seemingly hit the trough and now on the upswing? I mean, what is, is it been supply chain, you know, all the typical reasons that we've been seeing in other commodities uh, and, and we're seeing the price surges in those things. I mean, what 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 are we seeing here and how specifically to oil and gas? So it's a great question. I think there's like a few ways to think about it. So oil is similar to other commodities. It's not unique. 
um, from a commodity cycle perspective. So we've been in a cycle of underinvestment and they say that like up cycles uh, last, let's say like 30 years or so, and then down cycles last like 10 years. And so this maps kind of to an almost 10 year down cycle from a commodity high in kind of 2012, um, which didn't feel like a high, but it turns out that was kind of where iron ore and coal and some of these other things peaked and then got crushed. Um, the biggest difference is that there's still almost all the iron ore that's ever been mined. It's in steel form, it's whatever. There's almost all the aluminum that's ever been created. There's almost all of XYZ commodity. There's not almost all of the oil that's been produced. And so if you think about commodities as scarce resources that are increasingly expensive as they get developed, um, because there's less and less in the ground, at least less easily cheaply accessible, oil and natural gas and other stuff in that hydrocarbon chain are pretty unique from that perspective. Coal is similar, but there's just so much of it relative to what we consume. Um, and so, yeah, I think I think oil is a little different. What's kept me interested in oil is that the underinvestment, because it all gets consumed, the underinvestment meant that in like long lead time, large projects with low declines meant that there was gonna be an oil bull market and it was gonna be vicious. And what we're seeing is, um, I guess what, what, what happened is that when there should have been a bull market, uh, let's say five years ago, because their declines caught up pretty fast, um, there was a bubble of like basically institutional investors decided they wanted to lose hundreds of billions of dollars. And they invested that money in oil and gas private equity funds who had managed to kind of like do funny stuff with accounting to like look okay, similar to like what normal private equity funds did through the financial crisis where like stocks were down 50% and like their books didn't get marked down. And it was like, oh, magic. So um, the private equity funds did that. They raised a bunch more money. They kind of did like asset trades with each other. They suckered a few public companies into buying some assets they shouldn't have bought. And they spent stupid amounts of money drilling wells that flooded the market again. So it shouldn't have happened, but it did. And so there was this kind of like double down in oil and gas that was pretty unique from a cyclical perspective. And it really forced things down way more than they should have gotten forced down. And that's exciting because that means that there's now... Uh, this like hatred, there's all this institutional money that's been lost, that's probably not coming back or needs like radically higher returns to come back. Um, and so I think to me, that gets like really exciting. Like, I was tracking the long lead time projects through this whole cycle. Um, and it's been, I've, I've thought that oil would recover for years now. And now that it's starting to recover, tracking rig activity, tracking some of the short cycle stuff, it's pretty exciting because there's kind of this like short thing, which is that the shale boom is busted. And then there's the longer thing, which is that conventional oil, OPEC type oil production in Saudi Arabia and OPEC plus in Russia, um, as well as conventional offshore Africa and Brazil and so on has all been underinvested in. And so you have like the short term and long term lining up to potentially achieve higher oil prices than we've ever seen, even on an inflation adjusted basis. Got it. I mean, Okay, so everything that you just said, I, I would argue that that was the grad school version of, of basically what's happening right now. So for those who just want like this simple narrative, aka you're looking at them, the 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 simple you know for for those who you know just quickly glance at the CNBC or quickly might watch just this portion of, of, of the podcast. You know, what's that simple narrative surrounding oil and OPEC and energy right now that's also causing some of this upswing? So oil production declines by about worldwide about 10% a year. And what we've been doing is 
replacing the production that's been declining with production that declines by 70% a year. So you're making the problem worse. It's like feeding a fire with lighter fluid instead of feeding it with charcoal or feeding it with logs. And so we've been feeding it with fire, with like combustible stuff. And that combustion is now mostly done. Most of the core inventory is gone. And so we're in this position where we we've like kind of learned not to put more lighter fluid on the fire, but like we, we need to go like grow the trees to chop them down or maybe not grow them, but we need to kind of do some of that stuff that's really necessary in order to be able to um, get production um, to a point where we're not having a material shortage. And then it really matters because uh, oil is used for everything in the world and there's almost no demand elasticity. So basically like, we have a problem, which is that we need, we're growing our demand and our supply is shrinking and we don't have the equipment and we don't have the people and we don't have the locations to drill and everything costs more and is harder at the same time as we need more and more of it. And so this is lining up, you know, we've seen this happen with gas prices in Europe and Asia, and we can talk about how they're linked, but I think just kind of directionally, that's an indicator of like what could and may be likely to happen with oil prices, uh, except potentially even more violently because we need it even more than natural gas is needed in Europe and Asia. So Josh, you know, you mentioned, you mentioned about, you know, we're seeing a depletion in inventory and, and supply. I mean, what, what's some of the reasons for that? I mean, to borrow a phrase from junior mining, and I'm sure I'm dead wrong when it comes to oil and gas, but, you know, is the mine life of some of these oil wells, are they running dry from the traditional, you know, uh, high suppliers of oil and gas? I mean, what, what's, the, what's going on here? So I, I have twilight in the desert uh, and behind me. So uh, I'm not fully subscribed to the, like the guar is going away, but yeah, like I think generally speaking, we're seeing some of the biggest oil fields ever discovered um, that are still on production are starting to hit that point where they're getting into terminal decline. So there's like definitely some of that. And then there's also the result of underinvestment and exploration for the last almost 10 years. So really since 2012, there's been very limited exploration activity. And especially since 2014, where oil prices fell from over hundred down into where they've been in like a $50 or so range, plus or minus a little bit for the last six years. Um, so, so there's been under exploration, the existing production is getting a little long in the tooth. And then we're seeing one after another of these like large old fields. So like there was a big explosion uh, offshore in the Gulf of Mexico on the Mexican side, um, which put a third of Cantarell off production. And they used a controversial method to bring it back on, which likely dramatically shortens that reserve life and um, probably yields hundreds of thousands of barrels a day less production. And again, like that on itself doesn't necessarily matter, but that magnified across many different places um, means that oil is harder to get and more expensive, and it might be getting a lot harder to get and a lot more expensive. So, I mean, is there just a huge rush right now to do the, the exploration and find some more and to replenish some of that oil? I mean, what's happening right now? So, so there's like the part of me where I like started smiling as you were asking that. And then I remember just like how absolutely devastating this is going to be. So there's like the good part, which is like, we're making a lot of money and like, there's a lot more money to be made, I think in oil and gas and oil and gas equities and the commodities and so on. Um, but there's also the tremendous human pain and suffering, which is unnecessary that we're already starting to see and is going to get a lot worse. 
And so um, not to get like too dramatic or whatever, but like um, it's so, so we haven't even started looking for new oil yet. So the rig count's still low, both in the U.S. and worldwide, um, and current activity levels would likely see a decrease in production year over year over time. So we're actually underinvesting relative to current production. Current production is insufficient relative to current demand, and demand is rising faster than production that's being withheld from the market can be brought back on. And there's more latent demand than there is latent supply. So we're setting up for a massive squeeze. And again, like this sounded like really weird to say a couple of months ago, I did that in like another uh, presentation uh, to actually a Houston investment club and people looked at me a little strange. Um, but now it sounds a lot less weird. Like natural gas in Europe is pricing in uh, $180 a barrel oil. Uh, on an energy equivalent basis. So, hey, like maybe that doesn't sound so crazy. And like, again, it's worse for oil than it is for natural gas. There's a lot less oil in the world and it's a lot harder to get out and it takes a lot more energy to get it out. So, I mean, it, what what are some of the reasons why there's been such an underinvestment. I mean, are we, is there, is there investing risk from, you know, larger, larger stakeholders out there? You know, obviously ESG is really coming into focus and the environmental risks as well. You know, are, are these, is some of the trends here affecting that, or is it just because there's just all the main money just doesn't want to deal with the cyclical industry anymore? I mean, what's, what's, what's happening? So I think, I think shale kind of killed the demand on the capital side for oil and gas. So because the projects were so short cycle, um, people kept betting on there being these like short-term recoveries and they kept flooding the market over and over again, year after year. And so I think like the, the demand from the longest term or ostensibly longest term oriented investors like pensions and endowments and foundations and their consultants, which turn out by the way, not to be that long-term oriented. Um, but those guys, that whole kind of demand center is gone. And that demand died by the way, way before this whole like virtue signaling ESG thing, the ESG thing just like kind of sounds good. And to me, it's more indicative of getting to the very late stage of like the equivalent of shale investment in tech and biotech and some of this other stuff, you, the types of companies that are like structurally unprofitable, like that ARK Investments or some of these other guys invest in that like supposedly they're innovation, but really they're just bad businesses that like lighting money on fire, like a DoorDash. I've been looking at these a lot from an inflation perspective as like, hey, maybe there's like the other side of the story. There's like the human demand problem, which is that, you know, people in India and China and other third world countries are going to struggle a lot as energy prices get higher. But there's also companies that are structurally unprofitable that will be more unprofitable with an even less good argument that they'll be profitable many years from now uh, in an inflationary or higher interest rate environment. And I actually think inflation is a bigger deal than higher interest rates for those companies. People are looking at the wrong things. But like, the very end of that sort of bubble is like you end up with these like weird stories about things that make no sense and like are self-defeating. So like this like flood of money towards virtue signaling, like we're divesting of XYZ thing that we don't even own in many cases um, to invest in this other thing that like loses money, has a less than one EROI. So like you get less power out of it than it took to make it. And you're basically, there's this amazing chart. Uh, actually, I'm presenting at a university and later today, um, virtually. And I found this chart that's just stunning where it shows uh, silicon prices in 
um, in China, the, the element that's necessary for solar panels. And they map almost perfectly with coal, where coal prices have spiked in China. And it's like, okay, wait a second. Like if the goal is to pollute less and like, you know, make the world a better place. And I'm very much in favor of like making the world better and of protecting the environment, but it's not accomplished by burning coal in China. That just doesn't, doesn't accomplish what we want I think from, for humanity. And so, um, so I think it's not real. I think it's like, it's like deeply cynical. It's the kind of stuff you read about like fourth century, like Roman empire, or like, you know, look back at the prior collapse uh, before that, where, um, you know, as the kind of like proto Greek empire kind of fell a thousand years before the Romans, there were these like weird things people did like right before everything just blew up. And like ESG is so obviously fake. And so like destructive environmentally, as well as destructive towards like people's lives that, you know, it's only the sort of thing that happens at the very end of these like terrible capital cycles. Um, and, you know, again, those are like big claims, but we're seeing it and we're about to see it, I think, in a much bigger way. And when people are cold and hungry and in the dark um, and as the people that are affected by that are the same people that we're ostensibly trying to protect. And there are people who are minorities, there are people who are women, there are people who are whatever, right? Whatever sort of like virtue signaling woke thing that people are picking on at that given moment. Um, as those people suffer the most and like the guys that are divesting, usually men that are divesting from these things uh, with endowment money or, you know, with like ETF money, like BlackRock did. I mean, these guys are unaffected and they're flying around in their private jets telling people to take the subway instead of driving a car. And it's a very weird, weird thing that's just so convoluted that, you know, I'll just say, hey, this is like evidence of like about to be a huge, huge problem. And so I actually don't think it matters that much for um, for oil and gas prices. I think that they were going to go up anyway by a lot. And like Harvard or whomever, uh, Casset at the, was the most recent one. It's a big Quebec pension fund manager. Like them supposedly divesting, they already sold almost all the oil and gas anyway, and they weren't investing in it. So it's just kind of an excuse to like invest with other stuff that they want to invest in that's going to lose money and be bad for the environment. But like, it sounds good, like giant solar panels in places where there's no sun. I mean, wow, you know, that there's some takes there, that's for sure. I mean, so, you know, you paint somewhat of a dire picture in, in some respects as to kind of where we're at. And, and that's your opinion, of course, you know, but also in your opinion, I mean, is there is there any light at the end of the tunnel or is there anything that's being done to solve some of these I I'd, I'd, I'd say existential problems that are happening right now? I mean, what what are you seeing? Uh, well, they shut off Bitcoin mining in China, so that helps. Uh, they were burning a lot of coal to mine Bitcoin. And I actually set up a mining operation uh, in Canada when I was chairman of a company up there. Um, we had some like extra gas that we were getting no money for because uh, Canada doesn't believe in pipelines anymore. They like to bring their oil in via tankers from Saudi Arabia and Venezuela and um, not from via pipelines, which are cleaner and less risky. Um, from cleaner oil fields in Western Canada. So um, the, among the problems associated with that, natural gas prices in Canada were quite low. So we started using, there was electricity arbitrage, plus it was also like truly environmentally friendly, bringing Bitcoin miners from China to Western Canada into an environment that was kind of more favorable. It was colder in the winter, so you didn't need to pay as much for air conditioning uh, for the machines, which are very, very power intensive. And so they're very heat intensive. And 
um, ironically, then more power intensive because it takes a lot of power for air conditioning. Um, so uh, th that's great where you have like free unlimited power essentially. But if you're in China or somewhere else like that, where power translates to like nutrition for kids or like, you know, not being in the dark at night. I mean, they've actually turned off power in several cities in China. They're like telling people to use flashlights. Um, so, which is like, I mean, I don't know. There's like not a lot even to say about that other than, Hey, like, it's good. Like we're seeing some steps there. Um, it's good in that, like, there are still oil and gas companies at like two or three times cash flow um, on prices that are way below the likely marginal cost of production. So, you know, those prices probably go up a lot and the valuations probably go back to kind of in seven or eight times kind of cyclical, like average over the last, you know, 10 years. And maybe they go way higher as people start to price in potential future price increases. When they start to go higher, that's probably where I get out and say, thank you very much and move on. Um, but, uh, but from a humanity, I don't know. I mean, it's tough. Like we're really, if you underinvest in things that you need, um, and they take a while to bring on. I mean, it's kind of like if you need to start a fire and you haven't planted the trees to cut down the wood to put in the fire. Yeah, and also, I mean, because the, the, there's folks out there that make the counter argument of like, okay, well, we need to invest in alternative ways, uh, alternative, alternative energy resources, you know, uranium's thrown out there with nuclear, you know, I, I mean, give us, kind of, kind of gives the straight facts, right, of like, you know, that's potentially not even an ESG solution that some folks might even say it is. And at the same time, you know, bring some of these plants and maybe other alternative energy resources online also takes time, you know? So, I mean, is, is that also some of the stuff you're seeing? Yeah. I mean, like the issue is if you look at China, you can see how solar panels just don't work because China likes to invest a lot of capital, like the, the way that their economy works as a centrally planned economy, they um, find things that take a lot of capital where the return on capital can be like not substantially negative. They don't mind necessarily even losing a little money on the capital. They just don't want to lose all of their money. And so um, they'll take things that are very capital intensive, they'll apply them and they'll do it to kind of the limit that they can. And it's good because it creates jobs and it creates wealth in the sense that like the whole, even if the thing itself doesn't generate any profits, um, at least it kind of creates a value chain and, you know, it builds up a potential tax base and it, you know, it, it's like, it's not, it's not a great way to do it. And like the realities we've seen over the long run that like um, Adam Smith was right and Marx was wrong. Um, but uh, as evidence repeatedly over time, as these things are tried, but Hey, at least for a while, like that application maybe isn't so terrible. And it, it did, it did get a lot of Chinese people out of dire poverty and starvation, which was, to some extent, to some extent, self-inflicted. Um, so, what you see is this desire to deploy a lot of capital into manufacturing capacity. Power generation is highly in demand in China, right? I mean, there's like blackouts now, but they kind of know how much power they need. Solar panels are very capital intensive, so you can see that it doesn't work because if it worked, if it just generated like no return, right? 
it would be used everywhere in China because, and they're just like every square inch of land would be covered in solar panels because that's what they've done with everything else that has like a hope of working. So I think it tells you just how much it doesn't work that they haven't been doing that. And yeah, they're talking about using less coal and other stuff, but like they're not doing the German solution, which is to just put solar everywhere. And the reason is that they're centrally planned. So they have some ability to like look at this stuff and say, hey, is this like, like solar is a worse idea than Evergrande. We're building all these empty uh, office towers and wind apparently is also. And so, and again, like it's not true everywhere that like islands and other places, like there could be a positive EROI versus like some of the other alternatives. But um, I don't think, I think when you just do like a basic sniff test like that and just say, hey, does, is there like any chance of this working? Like China is very aligned, again, from a solar perspective, they'd like, like to have cleaner air, they'd like to, I mean, their people don't like that, like the air is hard to breathe and so on. And like, that's a policy goal. They like to spend money on things that earn kind of a neutral return. They'd like to have more power generation and it's just not happening on the alternative energy. So I think like, if you ignore everything else and you just focus on that, that tells you that like solar and wind are not the solution for the future. Uh, you asked about uranium. I don't know, it's complicated. Uh, nuclear power plants take a long time to build. If you build them too quickly, uh, we see what happens there. And that's like a very not acceptable solution. So if you look at kind of a next 10 years sort of thing, I don't think that uranium comes close to solving that problem. And anyone suggesting that it will solve that problem, I think is just asking for the next Chernobyl or whatever. Like you just can't even, we should build a lot more, but you can't rush it. And we're not anywhere close to having enough. Gotcha. Hey, real quick, I wanted to kind of, I don't know if this is pushing back, but I'm just curious on the reasoning on on the solar and wind argument in China and why they're not doing it. I mean, was it at all tested in various areas of the country and or or because because to say that they don't they because they haven't done it yet or they haven't done it when they would normally invest in infrastructure, even if they lose a little bit of money as the reason for why they're not probably not going to do it. I mean, I'd love to hear, let's dive a little deeper into that because that's interesting. I mean, is it, have they tested it and just didn't work or because like you said, it, it does work in some places or it has worked in some places. Yeah. I mean, I think there's some specific applications. I think like Planet of the Humans does a pretty good job with that. I was really surprised when Michael Moore put that out and I wasn't that surprised when it got kind of like suppressed and censored and whatever. Um, so it turns out that many things that are called clean are not clean, including solar in many cases. So um, I don't remember, I don't think they went to China specifically. I do think I remember hearing about, and I, when I was there a number of years ago, I think I remember seeing some solar panels. Um, they manufacture, they're like the leading manufacturer of solar panels in the world because people care a lot about coal burning in the US and Europe, and they don't seem to care nearly as much about coal burning in China. Uh, again, it's kind of one of these like weird, like woke 180 things where like people care a lot when it's like white people experiencing it, but care a lot less when it's Asian or black people experiencing it. It's like deeply racist, but they don't care. They just, they just do it anyway. Um, so uh, given that China's building so many of these things and they seem to have tried it, I don't, I don't have like specific data on hand in terms of like what things they've tried or not, but like where they've built a lot of stuff before, historically they've used it where they can build it. Like they're not, uh, you look at housing or other sorts of like big capital things, like they got really good at building um, office buildings and uh, high rise uh, residential towers. And so they built a whole lot of them. I mean, they're not 
flawless, but they got good at building them inexpensively and at scale. Um, you don't really see them and, and you see them exporting that, but you don't really see them building a lot of stuff that's like really useful and not using it themselves. So um, I think as a heuristic without having like a ton of data on hand, it's not really something I've spent a lot of time on, but like given that heuristic, like I need to see a lot of evidence to show that there was like, it just, they just happened to have overlooked this or something like that. Fair, fair enough. All right. So to, to kind of close the book on where we're at right now in energy and where potentially it's going, you know, from an investing perspective for those listening that are like, all right, okay, you guys have talked enough theory right now and everything, you know, uh, where are the opportunities then right now in, in, in energy? Uh, what, what are you doing with your money in this in, in, to take advantage of what's happening? So I think like generally oil and gas stocks are materially undervalued. And I think like the set of companies that people go to by default are not good places to put money because they are in many cases taking money and accepting losses in order to virtue signal. So many of the oil majors have started large scale alternative energy projects. And another way to tell that their negative return is that if you look at their investor presentations and claims, they claim that there are low double digit returns on investment. And to calibrate that, I've spent the last 15 years looking at public company uh, presentations where they claim high double digit returns and they still earn like a single digit, like overall return from an accounting perspective. So if high double digits yields a single digit return from accounting perspective, low, low double digits or like, you know, uh, high single digit returns claimed on a project basis would lead to materially negative returns. So, um, I don't think, I think like if you look at like XLE, for example, kind of the big ETF and a lot of people say, oh, well, it's like way underperformed. Well, it should because you have like BP and Shell and some of these other guys taking all of their extra money in many cases that they're getting from oil and gas production at higher prices and they're just spending it on bidding up offshore wind farm leases. Um, and like, it was really funny. I'm going to rag on BP a little bit here. Hopefully that's okay. Uh, BP has like a horrible operating track record. I mean, this is not contentious because they like filled the Gulf of Mexico with oil, or at least they covered the surface of it almost entirely with oil at one point, or a lot of it. Um, and they've done this with other stuff. They're like a very poor operator from a safety perspective. I've seen multiple reports on this. Um, you know, find it yourself. Don't like rely on my allegation of that. But um, then they say, oh, we're applying our offshore expertise to wind. And so it's like, okay, well, how do you have a blowout with a wind farm? Like what, what's, what's going to happen? And so I don't know what's going to happen, but probably not profits for shareholders. So uh, I think it's helpful to establish like where not to go because that's like where most of the money, like I think people are like well-intentioned with these things and they'll, they'll like just say, okay, well, yeah, I'm a financial advisor or I'm a fund manager and I'm just going to like, you know, go buy the largest, most liquid thing, or I'll go buy Exxon or I'll go buy Shell or whatever. So I think that whole category of things is almost uninvestable. It should still do okay as oil prices go up enough. But um, it's just really hard to own because they're choosing to uh, actively destroy, from my perspective, a large amount of capital. Again, using these heuristics, individual cases may vary. Who knows? I don't own any of those stocks. Um, and then kind of the other thing I'm seeing on the what not to own, and we were chatting about this before uh, before we did this, was um, you know, there's these various kind of heavily promoted stocks. So the most recent one is Camber, which I don't own, I'm not short, uh, but it's kind of 
there was a one before this called Torchlight, similar idea, um, got a ton of attention, tons of shares traded. Um, and there's like, I spent a little time today looking at Camber um, and it's really hard to tell what they even own, but like digging through their financials, they like own a majority stake in something they're supposed to be consolidating into. And if you give them all the credit for the stuff that it could be, and none of the negatives from all the liabilities or the hedges and whatever other stuff, um, they're trading at like, it was somewhere between $300,000 and $500,000 per barrel of oil equivalent traded per day. And you can go buy many different quality oil and gas companies on the large cap side for like $40,000 per barrel per day, or on the smaller cap side where I'm finding value, maybe like 20 or so thousand dollars per uh, barrel of oil equivalent per day. So there's like lots of interesting value, but there's also kind of these things that it seems like a lot of liquidity is getting sucked into. Um, and so uh, I think like the opposite of those are interesting, which is uh, undervalued companies that are less followed, that have good management teams, good assets, strong balance sheets um, that show uh, a substantial cash flow and maybe have something that like people are not appreciating. But like if you just found, if you eliminated the guys that are wasting a ton of money on alternative energy and you eliminate the ones that are uh, attracting GameStop sort of like... Um, liquidity, uh, I think you end up in an investable universe that's like pretty, pretty interesting and pretty compelling. Very good. All right. So we're about to take like a 20 to 30 minute giant step back because uh, we just, we dug right into the main reason I wanted to have you on today was to talk about all that, you know? So uh, I, again, I normally start all my, my interviews with, you know, uh, with, with certain questions. So we're, we're going to do that now. So you know, uh, to give folks who've been who are stuck with us thus far, you know, let's give them some uh, perspective. I guess you know, where would you say your passion for investing began, and then what led to your founding and start of Bison Interest? Yeah, so um, and it's good to do that, right? You really want to know who you're talking to, and you want to know what their background is because you can like hear something that sounds interesting, and then it turns out that someone's like co-founded the thing, and like you know has some sort of weird economic interest or some other sort of bias or whatever. I think it's it's really good to to do that, and so it's a good good thing to talk about. So. Um, I'm from Santa Monica, California, so not like an obvious like oil and gas uh, guru or investor or whatever. Um, I used to read the newspaper every day front to back uh, as a kid. Uh, so, you know, it was really cool and popular. Um, and uh, I really liked the Motley Fool newspaper column. So before they were a big finance website, they were a newspaper column that two guys wrote. Um, and I just, I thought it was really interesting. Kind of typical story, you know, got some money for my bar mitzvah was like investing it in high school, did pretty well with it. Um, and then uh, went to the University of Chicago, studied economics um, and was told basically that markets are efficient. Like don't mess around with this stuff. Sure, you can do it as a hobby or whatever, but like don't do it as a career. Um, and ironically, I actually interviewed with Amaranth and decided not to work for them, which worked out pretty well. Um, but then got to see like pretty early on that that was like, you know, there was like some weird, interesting, random validation that maybe that sort of thing isn't such a great idea. Um, so I did management consulting. Um, I really liked fixing businesses. Um, I didn't really like that there was no kind of like ownership. And one of the firms I, I worked for in consulting was like really great and aligned and whatever, but it was like more technology oriented and less kind of business strategy. And that wasn't like where I wanted to be long-term. Um, so I went to work for a private equity fund um, doing some of the fixing as well as some of like the ownership and buying and some of the more financy stuff. 
And I had an intern at the private equity fund who is now a famous finance writer and investor, Morgan Housel. And so Morgan and I basically spent three months sitting in like a fairly small room talking about value investing. And, you know, very much to his credit, I don't know that like my life would have taken the path that it has uh, if it had not been for those months with uh, with Morgan. I, I think it was like a pretty unique experience and probably invaluable. Like I don't know what you'd have to pay him to like stick him in a room and have you uh, have you do it. And I, I think we were probably paying like ten dollars an hour or whatever to do whatever he was supposed to be doing. So um, he got me to come along with him to Berkshire meeting. Um, he brought me along to a uh, uh, Dando investor. Uh, uh, to Monisha's annual meeting as well in like 2009 or something like that. And um, that got me really interested um, in revisiting kind of what I had treated as a hobby, as a, as a full-time uh, profession. I ended up working for a family office um, doing it as a profession and then ended up eventually uh, after the oil price crash of 2014 uh, founding Bison and Trust. So you saw the opportunity in 2014 with the crash. You're like, okay, well now, based on all my research, based on everything that I've studied, like now is the best time to start because this is when we should be allocating. Based on all everything you learned, you know, not just from Morgan, but doing your own research uh, and, and understanding value investing, it's like, okay, this is what everybody hates now. Good, okay, this is this is the stuff I lo- I've always loved, and now everyone hates it. Great. Yeah, so so I co-founded Bison, and actually our co- my co-founder has since left. Like things were tough for a long time because we started this in 2015, and it was basically like oil and gas stocks were down. I don't know, like 70 percent or 80 percent from their 2014 highs, and um, you know it looked like it would be a kind of cyclical downturn in recovery. And if you looked at past cyclical downturns for oil, and you looked at kind of what was happening, there wasn't really much of an indicator that things would be a lot worse. I mean, again like that was kind of consensus. And I don't know that I knew it or we knew it well enough to really be able to tell what would happen. And I don't know that anyone really knew, um, but uh, it proceeded to get like worse and worse day by day. We started in like May of 2015 and it was just a disaster. And uh, so we have this like bison in the background. It's a good reminder. The bison's the only animal that faces into the storm. And so it gets through it safer and faster. The other four-legged animals all kind of run away. And the thought has been that by focusing on this thing that's become increasingly abhorrent and repellent to everyone, including institutional allocators, including people that invested money with us and then got mad and pulled it um, as we just kept doing this thing that we were doing, which was buying value priced oil and gas stocks with good assets, good management teams and good balance sheets. you know, as it got more and more unpopular, the opportunity set got better and better. And I mean, it got to the point where it was ridiculous and now things are up a lot and they're still ridiculous. Like they're still just don't even make sense in terms of how cheap some of these companies are on a free cash flow basis, even if you assume oil prices were to go back down quite a bit and stay at those lower levels for a long time. But yeah, no, I wasn't saying that like Morgan got me into like oil and gas specifically, just kind of into right, right, right. value investing. And then, you know, over a long time of evaluating different opportunities and um, looking at different stocks and different investments and failing at many things and doing well at some things uh, eventually, uh, that, that culminated with uh, co-founding by And have you diversified at all outside of oil and gas? I mean, have you, have you looked at any other uh, industries to get exposure to? Or do you, are you like, you know what, this is what I know. I'm sticking here, you know, trading it out when I need to. And that, that's it. 
So I have invested in other companies in the past and done quite well with them, but increasingly, so there's like two things going on. One, there's cumulative advantage, which is the longer you spend on certain things, the better you get at them. There's always a risk as a sector analyst um, of like falling in love with your sector. But while I do really like the oil and gas sector, and I think what's happening in it is very valuable from a humanity perspective, uh, it helps incremental production, helps feed and clothe and heat and provide air conditioning to the poorest people in the world by pushing down the cost of these things. We increase their availability to the, the hardest, the people with like the worst lots from, from where they're born. Um, but uh, I, I think, I don't know. I mean, I've done a lot of different stuff over time from an investment perspective focused on oil and gas right now. I think the best opportunity set by a lot is on oil and gas and at the point where that's no longer true, and I can't say that like very easily with confidence, just sell stocks, return money, and uh, you know what I'll do personally, I'm not sure. Maybe I'll invest in other sectors. Maybe I'll start businesses. Not sure, but um, I think there's definitely a cyclical aspect to this. Retire? Uh, retire? I mean, the yeah, R whatever. word? I, the R word? I don't know. I don't want to throw that at you. You know, uh, having to kill it. I mean, why not? Right. <laughs> Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I feel like I feel like people like, you know, you find the things that like you can do to contribute to the world. And in many cases, those are through work rather than through uh, hanging out and playing golf. But hey, you know, golf is cool, too. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. So uh, we can go a couple different directions and I'm going to leave it to you, Josh. You know, I, I, who cares? I might be the host, but I, I don't care. I'm going to give you the option. We got we got a, a whole bunch of questions from Twitter. Uh, that we can answer right now, or I can go through some of my other stock questions that I love asking everybody and then get to the Twitter questions. So which, which would you prefer? What are you feeling up for at, at this moment? I, let's just, let's go with what you want and maybe let's ask. I don't know what I want to do. I, I don't know. I want to do both, but I can't. So uh, you, you tell me, do you want to do Twitter? Why don't we switch back and forth? Let's do one of your questions and a Twitter question and then another. All right. Okay, fine. All right. You're, you know, like I said, I should, uh, should, uh, I need to get a replacement. I'm, I'm terrible at this. All right, here we go. We're going to do, let's, let's dig into some of these questions. Let me refresh just to make sure I'm not missing any of uh, your questions. Um, and I'm going to go in order of when they were published, or at least I hope when they were published. Okay. Um, so we're getting a lot of questions on specific stocks, um, but actually let, let's do, let's not do specific stock questions first. Let's get, let's, uh, let's ask you a question from a friend of the podcast, uh, Jeff Moore at Ragnar is a pirate. Uh, he, he asked you, uh, ask, ask Josh about companies that are hedged, but have lots of production coming on and how that affects their net hedges out a year or so. Um, it's, this is like a real specific question. And I think Jeff really wants me to talk about a specific stock that he and I own that I'm going to not talk about. Um, so I've talked a lot about Sandbridge Energy, which I own stock in, the stock ticker is SD, not a recommendation. Any stock I talk about, no recommendations in both directions. I rag down oil majors, no recommendations on them too, um, but important to disclose where I own stuff. Um, so uh, I, I talked a lot about Sandridge publicly, partly because it was so hated. And I think actually sharing my investment thesis led to a large institutional client. I think it was like the catalyst for them pulling their money. So it's kind of, there's a little bit of this like personal thing, as well as getting to tie it to Bison Research, where we found that 
there's been this massive brain drain. So we started the, the interview talking a little bit about how like the people that are represented as experts in oil and gas in many cases are just not. And there's just not like enough familiarity for people to just immediately be able to say, no, this is wrong. Like, why is this person on TV talking to me? And they can do that with tech to some extent, but they can't do it with oil and gas. And like almost everyone is just wrong and they just shouldn't be and like, oh, um, <laughs> I guess I got a little excited there and uh, managed to uh, whack this thing. Um, so uh, I think I think uh, it's I've actually managed to upset a number of different oil and gas like ostensible experts or whatever through research that I've done, which is amazing because it's not controversial. It's like, okay, we're going to like measure how much spare capacity there is based on standard analytical approaches. Um, or for Sandridge, we're going to, and here I'm going to try this a little bit, um, we're going to um, look at where companies are producing in areas where they don't need to drill very much to keep their production flat, where there's more pipes than there is production. And so if there's more capacity than production, that means that it's not going to cost a lot to move your stuff from where you're producing it to where you get to sell it. If you're in an under, they call it like underpiped. If you're in an underpiped area, you're going to get better pricing for your stuff. So with Sandridge, I know this is like a tangent from from Jeff's question, but I'd rather talk about this than that. So um, with Sandridge, the basic and and like it, it kind of answers the question too. Um, so the basic idea was that local pricing would get a lot better. And this was something everyone hated because the local pricing was terrible because there weren't enough pipes. But people stopped drilling, companies stopped drilling in that area. And at the same time, um, more pipes had been built. And so you have extra capacity and less production. And many investors disliked Sandwich because they were not making a lot of money because they were making like 50 cents per unit of natural gas. And now they're making like $3.50 or $5 per unit of natural gas. And so you take a company that everyone hated and won't even give credit to for anything. And they say it's a high cost operator and it's bad. It wasn't bad. It was just in a bad place at the time that the people looked at it last. So um, I happen to like also that Sandbridge doesn't have a lot of their uh, production contracted to sell. So when people say hedges, really it's a financial mechanism of locking in the price that you're realizing in the future. And so if you think that prices are going up, you'd probably rather have exposure to something that doesn't have its price fixed and is able to benefit from increases in the going rate of the thing. Um, but it doesn't, it's not like a, a cure for everything. It doesn't guarantee returns or anything like that. And it increases risk if commodity prices were to go down instead of to go up. So there's kind of a balance between those things. I do happen to like Sandbridge a lot, partly because they are unhedged, but I like them more because their margins just went crazy high. And because people didn't, there's still this discount associated with their history, even though their present and their likely future is disconnected from the history because of enormous capital that was very generously essentially donated by university endowments and foundations and so on into what they'd call infrastructure investments, but were basically just like building 500 pipes in Northern Oklahoma. Thank you. Um, <laughs> and uh, now these companies get to over earn. So long answer to a short question, but I don't have anything against hedges. I don't, you know, it just is a different mechanism for getting exposure to a similar sort of investment theme. 
Gotcha. Actually, part two to his question, I probably should have said the part two as well, so that maybe it would shape it. I, I think you saw it too. But uh, he said, uh, he, he included in there and as such, how much more oil and gas will be coming online in the future due to companies like uh, EXCE and TOU.TO spending their cash flow on more production. I mean, you tell me, would you say you've answered that part two as well? Yeah, I think so. I mean, basically just yeah. like it matters what their margins are and it matters what they're producing and it matters how much cash flow they're generating. Um, and then just like one thing, tourmaline.tou.to is a very loved stock. And like, just generally speaking, they're not, they're not like problematic in the same way as like an Exxon is or Shell or whatever, where they're taking their money and lighting on fire. Mike Rose, their CEO, I've met him. Great guy, brilliant, very capable, but like everyone owns a stock. And so, um, a friend who's a brilliant value investor um, helped me understand this better in terms of perspective returns, where if you own something that's underowned, it can do better. And if you own something that's overowned or that everyone that like knows about it is like who's likely to own it owns it already, um, it's likely to do a little worse. And so tourmaline is extremely well known, maybe not in the US or whatever, but like of the people that are likely to buy it, they already know about it and own it because Micros is brilliant and great, but like it's priced like that to some extent. And so uh, I think it's a little more exciting to own the things that like people find distasteful because they're much less likely to be priced uh, appropriately. Very good. All right. So our next question here uh, is from Ethan Grunledger at Bugs Bunny. By the way, we're just going to go through all the Twitter questions, then we'll get to That's the questions. Fine. I figured. Yeah. Okay. So uh, this is from Ethan Grun Grunledger uh, at Bugs Bunny Anon on Twitter. Um, they ask uh, SD and a few of the names tossed around have been great trades. However, 100% SD may not work for everyone. Um, I think he's referring to 100% ownership and SD may not work for everyone. Uh, so he asked, what's your approach to building a balanced energy portfolio? And then what are you looking at that might suggest the topping signal in the trade? Um, OPEC, broader market crash, et cetera. These are, these are some good questions. You know, maybe, yeah. maybe I should hit up Ethan. He should, he should host these things. No, no, no. I think, I think you're great. Uh, I think, um, I think we kind of talked about the topping thing. I think um, it's a combination of valuations. People say that multiples get low in cyclical stocks before they crash. But from what I've seen in many of the most recent cycles and seeing a lot of stuff that's like cycled through in this kind of general uh, market bubble that we've experienced over the last 15 years or since the financial crisis or whatever, um, is that actually stocks in some cases, their multiples expand as they're about to collapse. So like Bitcoin miners or some other stuff like that, picking on various things that have like gone crazy and then collapsed. And so I think I'd actually look for multiple expansion from oil and gas producers. And then I'd look for capable uh, <laughs> people on TV talking about things that actually matter for these companies with like reasonable stock picks that make sense. And I mean, we're so far from that. Uh, you know, there's a few specialist things like I'm on BNN Bloomberg sometimes, like a small Canadian like affiliate of Bloomberg that I think Bloomberg forgot that they own. Um, so like those sorts of things are still, they've always been good. They're going to be good in the future, but like um, kind of expanded multiples as well as, um, you know, a more real narrative that prices in something about what's happening. And like, when I start seeing that, I think that's time to really kind of um, reconsider from a portfolio construction perspective. So we started Bison with construction, basically 10 names, 10% positions each. 
And the idea being like, hey, we'll like deviate from that a little bit, like we'll flex up or down depending on liquidity and depending on conviction. Um, that's morphed a little bit. Um, now it's kind of in that 10 to 15% range from a position perspective. And there have been a few times where we've gone to 20% position sizing. And even saying that eliminates the universe of people that can invest in Bison's fund, like in, in the fund that we're running, because there's a lot of people that don't believe in that sort of concentration. Um, I don't believe in that sort of concentration either, absent really high conviction ideas. Um, but like some of the best performing like some, the biggest profit contribution to Bison by a lot is a few of the very highest performing uh, positions that were concentrated. So like we've done okay at concentrating in the things that have done best. And if you can do that, then it makes sense, I think, to run a little bit more of a concentrated portfolio. Obviously, Sandbridge is not the only stock that I own. Um, that would be crazy. No one should own one stock, uh, only one stock. That's just bad. Uh, bad way to construct a portfolio. You take huge idiosyncratic risk and you can be right about everything and still lose all your money for something like a meteor hits and they're not insured for that or something like that. I, you know, I'm glad that you you got that out of the way and made sure it was clear that you're just not 100% allocated to, to Sandwich. That's, uh, I think everybody is breathing a sigh of relief on your behalf uh, as a result. Um, all right, so our next question that came in is from uh, Luke510 uh, at Zai Babiner. Okay. I, I, I hope I said that right. Um, uh, they ask, please explore RZE if you have time. Do we have time? Firstly. Um, sure. Yeah. Real, real okay. simple, real small. I, I own the stock. It's a micro cap and it's extremely risky. And the most likely outcome is that it goes to zero. And I'll share something with you that I don't think I've ever talked about publicly. Um, I still have a voicemail from a CEO that I think he either drunk dialed or butt dialed where he's calling me a jerk. Um, and so it's on my phone. So, um, you know, it takes a lot to then own the stock and talk about owning it despite that. And like there, it is most likely that Razor ends up at a zero. And I really don't like the guy. And like, I don't think almost anyone likes the guy. And that's like a lot to say about a stock, given that my portfolio orientation is towards like good assets, good management teams and good balance sheets. But as like a 1% ish position in the thing that might be the most levered oil stock to oil prices going above a hundred, um, I don't know. I mean, it's kind of like owning an option on oil. You know, you mentioned Cuppy, like he has this like call option trade going on and it's debatable whether like Razor gives you better exposure or his call option trade gives you better exposure. Um, I haven't put it on. I might put on some sort of thing along those lines at some point, but I haven't. Um, I'm more comfortable owning an equity where there's the ability in theory for them to add value over time to generate cash flow. Um, and I mean, Razor, it's supposed to be at 5,000 barrels a day. It's at 3,000 barrels a day. Just to give you the idea of like, just absolutely how like atrocious, but they'll get back to four or 5,000 barrels a day, somewhere like that. And their market cap, I think is something like $10 million US. Um, so in the, the calibrating like Razor versus Camber, right. To just like, just like dumpster fires, right. Camber, is that it was like 500 million enterprise value, including only some of their liabilities. Like it might even be much higher. Someone was saying that they talked to their management and the management didn't have a good estimate for the number of shares outstanding. And I can say, having spent like 20 minutes looking at their filings, I don't know how many shares are out. I know like a minimum number of shares, which implies $500 million of enterprise value, probably like 700, but let's just say 500 million of enterprise value 
for like under 2000 barrels a day. Um, you have Razor, which has a uh, 10 million-ish market cap and like, let's say 50 million of debt. So like $60 million enterprise value. But really it's like the, the, the debt almost doesn't matter because it either is going to zero or it's going to a crazy valuation. And Camber is not the right calibration point, but it's just to give you an idea of like how extreme things can get. And there have been points where oil and gas companies trade for where assets have sold for well over $100,000 per flowing barrel. And Razor's assets look terrible in a low price environment, but they're very low decline. So they could actually weirdly end up very highly valued in a high price environment. So that's why it's actually a little less crazy. Anyway, um, you can go from 10 million market cap to 500 million um, on half the production that Razor is supposed to have um, without giving them credit for their power projects or geothermal or other stuff. And I know I said, I don't like alternative energy, but if it's for free because the government paid for it hundred percent with grants, then it's not so bad because like, it's probably going to generate positive cash flow. So they have a geothermal project too. Um, so at those measures, I mean, like it could be again, a billion dollar market cap. I'm not saying it will be. And like, there's a lot of things that would have to happen for it to get anywhere close to that. And they're probably going to dilute and management will probably overpay themselves and they'll probably do 10 other terrible things, but it kind of doesn't matter because from 10 million to there, it's so, so I understand why someone wanted me to talk about that. And again, it's the most risky thing I own. It might be the most risky thing I've ever owned and I've owned stocks that have gone bankrupt historically. And I really try to avoid them. And it's just so levered and has so much potential upside that it's worth all of that as you know, let's say a 1% position. Very good. That was, that was pretty funny. I got to tell you, <laughs> I don't know. I've never ever heard. I've just never heard uh, uh, that before. That was, that was, that was fascinating. And, and I loved it. Uh, don't own the stock. Don't love the stock. I've, honestly, this is my first time hearing it. I'm just saying, I love, I loved Josh's explanation of, of RCE. So that was, that was pretty hilarious. Okay, here we go. Um, next question is from just Brad at not bad Bradley. Uh, his thought, he wants to know your thoughts on oil and gas royalty companies like TPL. Uh, he goes on to say that he's also a TPL bag holder. So he's probably just one similar. Just wants your opinion on a, another oil and gas name here. Yeah. So, so um, uh, I'll be careful here. Uh, the major holder and controller of TPL of Texas Pacific Land Trust, uh, I guess it's not a trust anymore, um, is a very famous value investor who many people respect and his by far largest holding that I'm aware of. And I think the highest return investment that they have is TPL. And I think a lot of people are in it because of that. And I think if you own something because of someone else's work, uh, that's a mistake. And if you want to pay them to manage your money, that's like one thing. But if you want to own a stock that you own personally, you should understand what you own. And I think, again, like just generally speaking, none of this is like invest, like I'm not specific, like buy this stock or whatever, but like do your own work. When I've looked at TPL, and again, this isn't a recommendation, and I, I know I say that, but I really mean it, like just do your own work. When I look at TPL, it makes no sense. It makes no sense. It's almost as ridiculous as Camber. And you have this brilliant person who's very articulate and very well respected telling everyone that it's like the best thing. It reminds me a little bit of the situation with Berkowitz and Einhorn um, with St. Joe around the financial crisis. And like Einhorn was right. And Einhorn's gotten a lot of uh, flack for a lot of things, but Einhorn was right and Berkowitz was wrong. And I think 
I'm not short TPL. Maybe I mean I, I don't short stocks because I'm just in this for the cyclical upswing for oil and gas, and then out. And so shorting to it just wouldn't accomplish much. Um, but it just doesn't make sense. And TPL has had many things go right for them that have been more like drawing, you know, uh, your card on the river versus um, things that were actually like predictable or intrinsic or whatever. Um, and so good for them, right? Maybe the intrinsic value is like $100 a share instead of like the $10 a share when like Horizon Kinetics bought it many years ago. But like that doesn't make it worth $1,200 a share and almost certainly doesn't make it worth the 1500 where it got like really popular and well-known and whatever. So long answer to a short question, really smart people own it. They're really articulate and the valuation is so far out of the ballpark and out of the parking lot outside of the ballpark into the next neighborhood and then some um, to, and, and there's many people that do a lot of good work on this and have put out very articulate um, contrarian views and variant views and just no one pays attention to them. People just pay attention to it. It's like some like arc with like some of their investments where it just like you look at them and it's like, what, like it just doesn't even, the starting point doesn't make sense. Forget like when you get to uh, an end value. Um, I, will, I will just throw in again, like one of the things I try to do when I own stocks, and it's like part of why I try not to knock things too hard, right? So like Camber is kind of this exception. It just I just don't even understand what's going on there um, in terms of other than like it being a Reddit, like excitement, whatever thing. But like TPL is interesting because it shows what's possible when you corner a stock and then get the company to buy back using all of the cash flow stock with like it just can make a stock go to a valuation that is very difficult to understand from an outside perspective. To me, it's exciting for companies that I'm in that have large buybacks in place that have a lot of cash flow. So again, I'll go back to Sandridge. Again, it's like not only stock I own, it's not even my largest position, but it is a large position for me. But Sandridge has a buyback in place. They're generating they're at, I think, around $100 million in cash on their balance sheet net of debt right now versus a few hundred million dollar market cap. Um, they, they have a $25 million buyback, which is relatively small. They should have been buying back stock at a dollar something instead of at 13. But if you take their model, which is they have a bunch of production that is very capital light, similar to TPL, and they have a bunch of land, in their cases, leases instead of minerals, but very similar. They own pipelines kind of similar to TPL. They have a tax shield, unlike TPL, which is over a billion dollar tax shield. So they can generate a lot of free cash flow and pay, I think their NOL might be 1.3 or 1.6 billion, somewhere in there. So it's kind of a model where in theory, and like you have Carl Icahn controlling Sandridge and running it essentially with his people on their board um, entirely uh, or almost entirely, um, it could be a next TPL. And so I don't really want to be like, hey, TPL is, it's not bad. It's just very, very, very expensive and poorly understood and well-represented. And maybe Sandridge ends up there. And if Sandridge ended up there, the value uplift from $13 a share or whatever from Sandridge to the $1,200 a share in TPL, I mean, it might be that sort of order of magnitude where if they buy back enough shares and so on, I mean, it could be like a thousand or something crazy because if you do the buyback math, and you look at kind of how that works. So that's like the conclusion, but like, you know, you have to, it's like an A to Z problem. So Sandridge is at like B or C or something and TPL is at like X or Y or somewhere in that range. So do your own diligence. I'm not sure at the stock, it just is very interesting. And it's a great question to, to have asked.
By the way, not not to not to toot Josh's horn for him. I mean, when he did the pitch on uh, on Sanders, I think we recorded that on August twelfth. I mean, I think the stock is up two and two and a half x since then, something like that. So, uh, just saying it was that's a nice call. I, I would argue, but anyways, um, and I'm not a shareholder, I guess, unfortunately since then. Uh, <laughs> but, um, last question from Twitter that, uh, I think this is a good question. I think we covered a little bit of it, but you know, might as well re-ask just to make sure we didn't miss it at all. Uh, this is from shovel stocks at Amarin Andreas. Thank you for this one. Uh, next to oil and gas, what other big bets, uh, are you bullish on currently or for the next cycle? Um, oil and gas. I mean, ethane, I guess, like I could kind of cheat. And we talked about that. That was like what that, uh, what that pitch was about, um, at the 10 K club, uh, thing with you guys, um, which was great by the way. And thank you for, for having us. And, you know, it's a fun, uh, it was a fun opportunity to get to kind of, uh, do that a little bit more formally and have these, these great conversations and it's super educational. I mean, I'll just like the, the pitch for 10 K club and for, for your, your, uh, conference. So your conference, I couldn't believe some of the people that were presenting there, like so cool. Um, and, uh, the 10K club is great because you have all these people that are focused on these really specific things in many cases with like no overlap. If you did like a concentric circle, you have like guys doing like special situations with like closed end funds or like me doing like oil and gas focus or, you know, a venture capitalist or whatever. Um, and even people doing similar things, but with very different roles, like senior people at funds or like junior analysts, um, Spending time with people like that, it's kind of like a YPO sort of thing, but for investing specifically is really educational and it forces you to be much more specific in what you say and much more open-minded in terms of like what could be out there. And it's often hard to predict what's going to work or who's going to be successful or so on at various things or in general. And so um, I'll just defer. I mean, there were some great other pitches on that 10K Club uh, presentation. They, people should check that out. And uh, I'm very fortunate to have people like that kind of in my circle. And when I start to look at other things, when I think that this opportunity has waned to some extent, that's like the type of place that I'd go as well as to your podcast and conference and so on, where no, I'm not just saying this, like there really were impressive people that I've heard elsewhere or that I've read about. And it's pretty cool to get to, especially in this modern world, to get to like hear them talk about what they think is most interesting. Um, so, you know, there's, it's great because I can just say, Hey, like, I, I just don't know. And there's great resources and, you know, you've provided generously essentially for free one of those resources. So thank you. Oh, absolutely. Wow. Thank you for that. I, re I really, really appreciate it. I'm going to have to pick your brain on some other folks that you want to hear from, and maybe I can somehow guilt trip them into a, having a conversation with me. <laughs> so great. All right. R what? Great. Yeah. So, okay. So now we're going to get back to my, my stock questions. Uh, uh, my favorite question to ask everybody. And, and um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to what you have to say on this. So you know, what, what would you say is an investing experience that impacted you the most? Just bar none, like I will always remember this experience and, and all the lessons I learned from it. I mean, there's a few that come to mind. So let's see. Um, I think one was um, when I was at the family office that I worked for after uh, working with Morgan briefly, um, uh we figured out that there was, I think like it was through some fund letters and some diligence, we figured out that there was a 
publicly traded investment fund in Brazil that was trading at a discount to the value of its investments. Um, and then you get their essentially GP, which was like partially owned by that entity that was public for free. Um, and they'd done very well. And um, it was as the financial crisis was starting to unfold. So it was like an interesting way to get exposure that was kind of hard to get. Um, didn't love the emerging market funds with like, you know, owning a bunch of Petrobras or whatever, like liked the idea of getting more real Brazil exposure. And so um, <laughs> the, the chief investment officer and I looked across the table at each other and we're like, someone needs to go to Brazil, right? And he's like, you. <laughs> so, um, so that sounds great, uh, right? Cause hey, you know, I was pretty young and it was great to get to go down to Brazil on someone else's dime on like a business trip where I would get to go meet all these fascinating people and I get there and within three hours of being in country, check into the hotel, go for a walk and I'm held up at gunpoint. And so, um, you know, th there's there's different things that have been also really tough or interesting or whatever, but like that really like marked that trip and the diligence associated with it. And I think gave me like a little bit more appreciation of like what it means to go on the ground to do diligence as well as like, what was really going on in Brazil beyond kind of these like stories that these fund managers would say. And um, it was also a really good way to tell kind of how real or fake the people were who I was meeting with. Cause um, about, I'd say half the managers that I met with um, were, and then we kind of did it as like a diligence trip for this particular investment as well as like, Hey, once I was there, might as well meet everyone. And if there was an allocation to do for the family office or whatever, might as well go like kind of check it out. Um, and so, uh, half the people were like, oh, that never happens. That's crazy. We can't believe that happened to you. And half of them were like, oh yeah, that's terrible. It happens all the time. Real sorry that happened to you happened to X, Y, Z person or me or whatever at some point in the last like recent past. And so that was kind of great and educational for me early on where people can sound really convincing, but like, that was like a, it was that. And then like, if people liked Petrobras or not, and like the overlap between people being honest about like the severe safety issue in Brazil and not liking Petrobras as a stock in 2008, 2009, um, there was extreme overlap between those two. And those people were just like honest and doing real work and real diligence. And so um, for me, it was helpful. Like it was obviously very like emotionally like charged and really kind of intense, but also like on the, in the aftermath, I think it was helpful in terms of figuring out uh, at least one way to find better answers. And like, it, it led me to try to find more heuristics to figure things out better um, in doing diligence of investments in the future. By the way, on that trip, I mean, after you get held up at gunpoint, like how, how do you like switch your brain off from like, oh my God, I just had this incredibly traumatic experience. So like, all right, now I got to go ask my <laughs> high level due diligence questions uh, and, and do all this. I mean, were you just kind of like, okay, that happened, you know, like what, what, what went through your mind? Yeah. I mean, it was really tough. And like, there was a part of me that was like, I'm just getting back on a plane and going. Um, and I didn't. And I mean, it's a little like the bison thing, right? Like, look, last year with oil, uh, interestingly, oil stocks didn't, didn't go to their low point when oil prices went to the low point, oil stocks uh, bottomed, in like middle to late March of last year. And like we were down and try to not talk about specific performance, but let's just say that typical oil and gas stocks in the universe that we were in were down 
from the start of the year, maybe even a little bit more. And like, that was shocking to people. And many people just pulled the pin. They'd been in it for a while, whatever. Um, And it's literally, it's like, it was a similar experience. You're kind of like almost a zombie, right? You like know this thing is happening and you know what your emotions are telling you and your friends and your coworkers and your clients and everyone is saying, pull the pin. Everyone's saying, like, I talked to my parents when, you know, I was like 24 in Brazil and just got held up by gunpoint. They're like, get, go home. What are you doing? And I think like it, people talk about this and like very successful people talk about this and hopefully I will be that successful one day, but they talk about these sort of like moments that are like inflection points for them from a career or life perspective. And I think a lot of it is like you, when you experience difficulty, you have to choose what to do and your choice and how you behave illustrates who you are. And um, I think it's like part of why we went with the whole bison thing for the fund, facing into the storm, addressing difficulty, understanding it, being rational about it and getting through it. And so um, I think it's kind of similar. I know it sounds like very marketing-y or whatever, but like it really was tough. And since that point, right, where just there was so much pressure and there was actually even more pressure when oil stocks were going down or oil prices went negative in, in April and oil stocks were up a lot from their low, like there was a lot of pressure actually at that point to, to close Bison. And many people I knew, I mean, many people I used to know in oil and gas don't do it anymore. And again, that's where I think it's so hard to find real kind of expert advice or where I think the TV networks and other and Wall Street Journal and whatever are struggling so hard to find anyone that actually knows anything on, about it because um, the whole thing has been cleared. It's like Forrest Gump, you know, where he buys a shrimp boat. I'm <laughs> Forrest in that example. And like, it was a terrible idea maybe, um, but like everyone's gone. So, um, so, you know, I, I think it's been interesting because, you know, then since then the typical, that, that universe is up, I don't know, 500% or 700% or something since that low, we've done better, um, you know, not marketing the funds so and can't disclose specifics, but like, um, yeah, it's been, it's tremendous. And like the trick is I think to overcome difficulty with more effort and more steadfastness, but also the willingness to like really consider you have to like, I think Jordan Peterson talks a lot about this and this is like a total, like, uh, like out of the blue, but Jordan Peterson says, and this is like something he realized kind of going through his depression and whatever, like when you see the darkness, you have to face it. And so, you know, I faced the fear of like going out again on my own in Brazil to these meetings dressed in a suit, like I needed to, to, to take the meetings after being held up at gunpoint when I was dressed in casual clothes the night before. And similar thing with bison, where it's, it's really kind of the equivalent of that. And you have to face the darkness, face the fear and evaluate it and understand it for what it is and then uh, behave appropriately. Dang, I want to ask you one more question, but shit, I feel like that's such a good place to end it <laughs> where, with that. But all right, I'll ask my one last question, you know, for, new investors uh, that might be looking at oil and gas right now, maybe even for their first time, you know, what, what advice would you have for them uh, at this moment? Yeah. I mean, I think like you want to avoid the things that are kind of the most talked about or frothy. Um, It's real hard, right? Because there's not really a lot of good um, places to go um, to, to find kind of good, reliable information about the industry. I guess I've said that now really repeatedly, um, 
having just gotten like scorched by several people who hold themselves out as experts and have just been like wrong consistently on stocks, on macro, on whatever, over and over. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think like the trick is to find people who have been right and where it, it's a fit for you from like a philosophical perspective and a fit for you from an analytical perspective and to build some amount of tools before just jumping into investments because it's really easy to buy the thing that's going up the most that month or that year or whatever. And it's really hard to stomach volatility that comes along with that. Where again, like my largest position, stock was down more than 50% during this year, but it's also up right now uh, almost 5X from where it started the year. And so, and usually people say those sorts of stories over five years or 10 years or whatever, you know, you need to be able to hold the volatility, but like there's extreme volatility in the space getting more educated on the space, finding people that can help you, finding people that are reliable, um, I think can really help. And then finding analytical methods and doing your own work to some extent can really help because, you know, it's like that TPL question. It's like, okay, it's just indicative of that person. And I don't, I don't know that person, but um, it's really hard. Someone that bought TPL, I would question the like what that process looked like and like what that diligence looked like. And I think you really want to approach it like any other sort of investment if you're going to buy a house, like what do you do to figure out if you want to own that house? And uh, stocks are portions of businesses that are real and oil and gas companies are real assets. Um, they, they're just a collection of assets with like people that are managing them and a balance sheet and capital structure that represents proportionate ownership in them as well as liabilities against them. And so I think it makes sense to consider them in that regard and to do appropriate diligence and proceed with appropriate caution. So I think there's like a lot of opportunities, but there's also a lot of uh, risk and uncertainty. And uh, it makes sense. The payoff on the work is that then you can have the conviction in the things that you own to own things that do better over time. Very good. All right. Well, let's end it right there. Josh, where can our audience go and find more information about you to follow your insights, your thoughts, as well as Bison Interests? Yeah. Uh, bisoninterest.com, our website. We have some content on there, some historic investment theses, as well as some macro stuff. And then Bison Interests, uh, at Bison Interests on Twitter. Uh, we have some stuff on LinkedIn and other places like that. Um, and always happy to take questions and to chat with people. Very cool. Well, Josh, thank you so much again for joining me today. This was Highly educational for me as someone who doesn't follow this sector really at all um, uh, in, in any capacity. So uh, thank you for, for taking the time and sharing your thoughts. And uh, I look forward to our next chat. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Podcast.